In about 31 days, one of the longest-running and most successful small business programs will expire. That is, unless Congress, when it returns to Washington next week, reauthorizes the Small Business Innovation Research, or SBIR, program. It'll have only three weeks to do so. In this week's Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the fate of this 40-year-old program hangs in the balance of what Congress can do by September 30th. Jason joins me now. Jason, as we said at the top, this program has been a success for 40 years. So many new startups, the Roombas and et cetera, defense contractors. Why now not reauthorize? Well, Congress has until September 30th to reauthorize the program. And Tom, this is not unusual that the program comes up for reauthorization every five, six, seven years, maybe sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. And you're right. It's been 40 years since Congress first introduced the SBIO program. The Defense Department, NIH, NASA, Energy, all these agencies really take advantage of getting these cutting-edge technologies and helping them produce, improve, really meet government's needs. And without this program, Tom, we wouldn't have programs like the iRobot that does the Roomba, right? Or you wouldn't have Pixar over at Disney or even your GPS system in your phone or if you remember the old ones that used to put on your car would not exist without the SBIR program. But what's happening is Congress is has not reauthorized it yet. And here we are at the very end of August, and they have about a month to reauthorize it. And they're only back in town after Labor Day. And then there's only something like 14 or so legislative days to make this happen. So there's a lot of concern, not only on Capitol Hill, but at DOD and across the federal agencies and within the small business community, that this will expire. And that would be, I think, as some people call it, a travesty. Are there political objections to the SBIR? Why why is it something Congress is dragging its feet on at this point? The big issue is from coming from Senator Rand Paul, the Republican from Kentucky, who is a ranking member of the Small Business Committee. And he's concerned about something he calls SBIR mills. These are companies that just win, 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 but never go to commercialization with their technology. So they're just using it to fund themselves but not really help the government out or potentially help the, this, the broader society out. He points to a, an analysis by something called the State Science and Technology Institute that showed between 2009 and 2019, 21% of these awards for SBIR were made to these quote-unquote SBIR mills. He says, according to SBA's own data, 196 businesses received more than 100 awards each. Some businesses received more than 900 awards during this time frame. Now, this is obviously outrageous, but Tom, you always have to look at the other side of these discussions. The Defense Department, for instance, made almost 17,000 individual phase two awards worth more than $14.4 billion between 1995 and 2018. So yes, the, the numbers Rand Paul points to are high. They're of concern. No one is doubting that. But do they really mean that the entire program is bad? Yet Congress has chosen, nevertheless, to never make it permanent in the first place. I think there's a couple of reasons why. And I spoke with Emily Murphy, the former administrator at the General Services Administration. And she also worked on Capitol Hill as a staff member for both the House Defense Committee and the House Small Business Committee. And so she focused on SBIR programs quite a bit. And she says there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, it's one of those things where... Congress always wanted to have some flexibility with the program to change it, to tweak it, to improve it. And once you make something permanent, it makes it harder to do that. So I think there, there's that realization. The other piece is that funding issue. So phase one, you get so $50,000. Phase two, you get $125,000. And phase three, you get up to $750,000. And the idea is, well, those numbers needed to increase over the years, and they may still need to increase. So again, the, the flexibility there to improve that part of it. But I think the fact is no one's ever really questioned the 
impact of the SBIR program. Tom, if you just look at what DOD talks about, they've said that the the return on investment for each dollar spent, they get $22 back in in investment. They've done $28 billion in sales of new products to the U.S. military because of the SBIR program. They say they, the, the more than 1.5 million jobs uh, have come from the, these investments in the SBIR program. So no one in Congress has ever really questioned the impact. They've just always wanted that ability to tweak it. And, and so the fact that Rand Paul is concerned about the impact of the program is really surprising to a lot of people on Capitol Hill. And again, a lot of people in the, the broader federal community. Have there been GAO reports on it? I mean, where did he come up with these numbers? It seems like something the Inspector General of SBA should have looked at or GAO. Has there been oversight? There is constant oversight. And I think one of the big concerns that Rand Paul brings up, but others too, is that is the benchmarks, is the are, are they holding companies accountable enough to commercialize their investments? And I think that's the concern Rand Paul has. And it's not just a concern from him. He's obviously the one with the power being the ranking member of the Senate Small Business Committee. But it's also a concern among folks in the program itself because, okay, you can get this money, but what are you doing with it? Tom, we've talked about this on your program before that phase three is called the Valley of Death. That's where a lot of these uh, SBR efforts go to die because what it requires in phase three is for DOD to actually let a contract and actually start to use the technology. And a lot of companies get through phase two, but they never get to phase three. And that's where a lot of people said the program can be improved upon. GSA, for instance, came out with a new approach in the last year or two under Emily Murphy, so probably about three years now, to really help commercialize and help get access to this phase three technologies that these companies are going out that the government has paid for. So this program has had a lot of attention and a lot of trying to hold these companies more accountable for commercializing the products. How successful it's been is a matter of debate. I think it's more successful than it's not, but there are a lot of folks do agree, the experts I've talked to that say there are ways to make this better. But as I think Emily Murphy said, Rand Paul has taken a blunt instrument to a program that needs a scalpel. And so if it would expire today, what would happen to the company's already halfway through the process that haven't stepped to the edge of the valley of death yet? And would there be some impact? There would be huge impact. And I think the impact comes from several different areas. First of all, and DOD's already put out a notice that said, listen, if this does not get reauthorized, our broad agency announcement will be paused. We will not have funding to go forward. We will not go out this broad agency announcement. So there'll be delays in putting out the request for research and, and research proposals. Second, a lot of companies do depend on SBIR money to continue to operate. I talked to Eric Blatt, who's a lawyer and, and represents about 50 different SBIR companies. And he says the venture capitalist community is not so into investing in these companies that, that look at DOD as a potential market. The DOD market is hard to crack, is not doesn't move very quickly. The procurement processes we know, Tom, can be slow and arduous, and they just don't want to necessarily invest money into this community. So a lot of these companies who have these great ideas are depending on the SBIR program to hire staff, to do this investment, to do this research, to push out this technology to the DOD. And then, Tom, there's the delay to DOD. Heidi Hsu, who's the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, and Bill LaPlante, who's the Undersecretary for Sustainment and Acquisition, wrote to House Small Business Committee members saying, this would impact more than 1,200 different programs that are meant for the warfighter if authorization does not happen. So I, I think th- there is a broad concern across the community about the downward effect this would have. Now, Tom, let's be clear. Congress will eventually reauthorize it. Now, it could happen in October. It could happen in December. It could happen sometime 
in the future. But all these delays will have this negative impact on the broader community. And I think that's why there's a big push over the last three, six months to get this program reauthorized. They do have those three weeks to do it in time at this point. Absolutely. But there's not a lot of legislative days coming up. Uh, I counted just 14 legislative days for the House. The Senate was not as clear about how many they had, but they're not coming back until after Labor Day. And that right there is 24 days just on the calendar itself. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out his latest reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.